Welcome, friends. I've always felt it is important to have positive role models in your life, kind of to to emulate their their best qualities and learn a lot of important lessons from them. And I'm lucky I met this guy when I was about 17 years old because he really helped shape me into the human that I am today. Not only as a martial artist, but as a teacher, as a friend, and now as a dad. I spent a lot of time on the mat talking to him, kind of searching for guidance and advice on many of those aspects of my life. He is a team balance black belt under Phil Miglaris and Ken Cronenberg, and also a veteran MMA coach who cornered fighters on the amateur and professional scene from local shows all the way up to the uh, big-time show at UFC. I'm definitely guilty of modeling my class structure around his style. Very positive, upbeat energy. Uh, he's he is really a great dude, and he's an, an even better uh, dungeon master. Love this dude very much, and I hope you enjoy this episode with my friend Dennis Segru. Recording now. Wow. It's just live. Like that. It's happening. Right, Dennis, thank you. I it's so nice seeing your face. I haven't been at I haven't been to any of the jujitsu classes yet, but this is nice seeing you. Yeah, yeah. It was good to see some people in person. A little nerve wracking, but it was good. It was good. What's uh how has that changed your like teaching style since you've been back? Since uh, now it's well, like you can only partner with dummies and Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's lucky for me? Um, and, and the students, I would argue, is that I've been doing Zoom classes right along. Yeah, right. I had to figure out how to do anything meaningful through Zoom yeah. for art that involves grappling with another person. You yeah. know what I mean? So I've had a lot of practice at it, and I'm really happy with sort of what I've settled on. You know, and um, so basically what what we do is you know, you have the grappling dummies, and I I try to focus on fitness, you know, where they're building strength and stamina and cardiovascular. Sorry, my cat is mauling me. No, <laughs> um, okay. uh, but basically, uh, all through jujitsu skills. So actually, level changes and shots and, you know, the, the mechanics of jujitsu. And then also using the grappling dummies to uh, practice moves like arm bars and, you know, positional changes and all stuff that's going to carry over the problem with zoom was it was very hard to make corrections yeah worst thing that you can do as a teacher is let someone practice something the wrong way right time went on uh i backed off of the grappling dummies a little bit because i just saw things that i couldn't couldn't correct in the course of a class that way but it still gave me a toolbox for now that we're in person, even though I'm not invading people's six to eight foot bubble, it's much easier to be like, no, put your right hand there and do this. So it's really nice. And just total side note, I'm taking a class right now on, uh, on the brain, uh, to, to help my, you know, my teaching and boy, really cool thing. You good, homie? Yeah. Yeah. I'm good. 
Uh, thing that I learned is the primacy regency effect, and I may be saying that wrong, but basically this idea that we learn best in the beginning of like a lesson or the beginning of, if you're trying to memorize, you know, seven or eight numbers, we remember the beginning really well and we remember the end really well and the middle is sort of a black hole because of our working memory and et cetera, et cetera. So one of the changes that I've made is what I would always do is do the heavy, hard, like a warm up, right? Become, come to workout and then sort of start to teach like techniques. So now what I've been doing for these uh, classes is start with technique where they're warming up by moving on the grappling dummy with like real jiu-jitsu movements. If we did like X-pass, knee on belly, knee bump, you know, uh, transition to mount, take an arm bar, right? Like warm up with that. Right. So you're, they're remembering that. And then in that dead zone in the middle of class, which is just where very little new learning can happen well, that's when I work them out to death. Like that's what we're doing, push-ups, and we're doing, you know, and, and I try to connect it to the movements we were learning, but in a much more physical way, or you know, push-ups, sit-ups, whatever, and then finish class by returning to some of those techniques, maybe even adding a little extension activity. So I don't know. We'll see. I look forward to the, the classes feel like they're more productive. Um, you know, only, only time will tell. I've got to keep track. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because when I teach my the Friday class, I do it almost the same way, but the last two parts are flip flop. So it's always like there's a warm up technique, and then we drill or work out. So it'd be kind of interesting to flip flop the two and see see what kind of yeah. results happen from it. Yep. Being like a social studies teacher, do you always go into class with like a written plan, or do you just kind of have an idea what you want to work on and just free flow from that? Yeah. Um... You know, both with jujitsu as a or, or when I was an MMA coach and um, with teaching, uh, kind of always the same format. Damn, the block is hot, homie. I know, dude. It keeps going off. Well, I understand. You're listen. You're a busy man. You're like big papa. <laughs> I would love to say that it's real estate, real estate but it's just agent. huh. You're like a big real estate agent. You're like a dad. Yeah. I was going to say, I wish it was just like clients blowing up my phone, but really it's like my mom. She's like, I love oh. you, honey. Oh. <laughs> oh, I blow my phone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're asking about, do I always have this big written plan? Yeah. So basically, all the things that I've ever done in that regard as far as transferring information, whether it's uh, kids' MMA, whether it's, you know, uh, MMA coach, BJJ teacher, social studies teacher, sociology teacher, always the same thing. When I'm doing a lesson for the first time, material and or, you know, like a new way to teach something or whatever, I always create some sort of a written, well thought out plan. And then when I go to do that again, I always look over the plan. Like when you recycle a technique, when I recycle a lesson, yeah, I always go back to it and then I either redo it, in which case I'm doing another full sort of write-up of some sort, uh, or I'll make a tweak to it. I'll just make a little note of the tweak that I have made uh, or some things after a while, no less, it's it's here now. You know, and it's like, if it's, if it's tried and true, if it's if it's still resonating with people, and I like it and they like it, then it just goes into the permanent sort of memory bank and I just draw it up. I just can freestyle it. You know oh, what I mean? Cool. But it takes a while to get there. Yeah. I, I, whenever I do my classes, I always have like, 
I always write it out usually the day before some kind of plan, but nine times out of ten that changes from the you know the level that's in the class or how many people are in the class. I have to make slight changes, but I feel more comfortable going into it when I have like things written out and I have kind of something prepared. I just yeah. I feel like I fumble too much if I don't have something prepared. Sort of like being a dungeon master, right? My other nerdly hobby. You, right. you prepare because you don't you can't control your students' reaction to what you're teaching. You can't handle you, you can't control um, their level of understanding, their interest. You can only try to prepare for that, right? But then in the moment you have to react to them if you're any good at it, right? And you you may scrap everything you've written down because what you see in front of you calls for that. Like this isn't working for whatever reason, right? And you just you just adjust and you live in the moment and you get it done. But having written that plan down, this is my connection, still helps you, right? Like like you had an anchor, you were ready, right. and you're reacting to something. You're adjusting and trying to figure out a new way to unpack that puzzle, or you realize that whole thing, we're just doing a different, you know what? By exploring this, I found out they actually don't know how to check a kick. That wasn't going to be the lesson, but yeah. now, it's, now it's let's check the kick, right? Yeah, right? Same thing when you're being a nerdly dungeon master, right? You prepare this encounter and the possible options and what some of the, uh, you know, the NPCs and the monsters are going to do or whatever. And then your players come in and they just start pulling the lever over there that you didn't mean to be anything about. And, and you're like, oh, sh- I need to think of something quick. Exactly. So that's where you take it. it I don't know. It's a very similar skill set. Yeah, I was like, uh, like trying to figure out something new for like teaching because I haven't talked to you how teaching was for you this year. Was it like a normal, was it like Zoom class was from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m.? Like how, how was class structured? No, I wish it was like that. We, we really couldn't do that. So, you know, we were, when I say we, I'm speaking for my my school district, but this is not, it's not a criticism at all. Um, but we were grossly unprepared for this, right? Like, I feel like a lot of people were. Well, yes, and yeah. I, I'm, I'm speaking to my school, you know, talking to people from other places, pretty similar some districts were a little more proactive earlier which helped but if but again i'm not criticizing i i can't imagine having had leadership roles to try to figure this out as yeah, a right. you know uh and i was lucky because i was already using a lot of the technology you know what i mean in yeah. some capacity like google classroom and you know those sorts of things um but for me it still was a massive shift um again I went from having all of these lessons, right, that, that worked, and it, it all predicated on being together, right? Because a lot of my lessons, it's history or it's sociology. They learn so much by discussing it, debating it, analyzing it, and that involves other people. Turn and talk to your neighbor. You know, let's debate this in small groups. Let's talk about it whole class. Let's. All that was gone. And the reason it was gone is... So even with Zoom capabilities, there's privacy issues, right? So, um, you keep going. I'm gonna let Terry back inside. Keep going. All right, man. I'll just. Keep going. It's very bizarre just talking to. Man. This is the most interesting podcast I've ever been on. The host just leaves, just pieces out. So anyhow, host. Um, so here's the deal, man. It's like, uh, 
when we went March 16th, right, it was all over. We went, we drove to I'm learning. The original plan was to try to keep my lessons pretty intact. And, you know, I would pick a time um, every day that I would be available online and I would teach my lessons and all the kids would be there in my head, right? We would do this thing. Well, we, but we got advisement from the district right away that um, we couldn't force kids. We could hold things at a certain time, but we couldn't expect all kids to be there. And the rationale being with everybody home, um, not every uh, home has access to multiple devices. Right. And yet they have, and yet they have multiple children, and um, so then it, part of the solution was we did a great job of distributing Chromebooks to people in need. You know, to, even if you you know you're not a poor family, but you can't you have four kids and you don't have four yeah. or whatever. Right. But we did a good job with that, but even then, you know, because a lot of parents were home too, the ebb and flow of the household, you know, our district felt it was a bridge too far to demand. Especially, you know, mom, let's say mom's got a third grader, a fifth grader, and a seventh grader at home, and they're all supposed to be doing stuff around the same time, you know, to put that on mom to be able to provide need for the first grader and the third grader. While all also the, simultaneously working a full-time job. job. Right. So the, so what they told us basically was that we could and should do live Zoom stuff, but, you know, it, it couldn't be required. So then my idea was, okay, so I'll do a class and I'll say this, if you can be here, this would be the preferred thing, and I'll record it. Because then there's, there'll still be interaction, kids asking questions, and I'll record it, and other kids will at least watch that interaction. I thought that was more beneficial, right? But then we were immediately told, because of privacy issues, you can't record with students on them. Ah, so it's like you guys are just totally learning on the fly. Right, right. So what I had to do was create lessons that were super student-centered, which is a good thing to do anyhow, right? Um, that they could explore on their own, and the lesson would walk them through that. And then I did lectures on content where I would just record myself, you know, teaching the Vietnam War or whatever, right? And I would put those videos out there for their consumption as needed. And, and Mickey Mouse did a little bit where they could like fill in the blank sort of notes, which is not normally what I do. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's not my style. I try to teach them to take notes, take notes the way you would in a in a business meeting or a college class, right? Yeah. So anyhow, I wanted to differentiate my learning that I that I couldn't do as easily from afar. And then I would I did a weekly Zoom that was you know. This is the only time I can do it. Come on, and we'll discuss your assignments you're working on, trouble you're having, questions you have. And a lot of my kids were getting ready for the AP test, so there was always information to disseminate about the, the test, and they had questions. So that became the format. It wasn't my favorite, but in retrospect, what helped was two things. One, I was taking a college course sort of on Google Suite, which sounds like, I mean, take a valuable college course and everyone can use Google tools or, of some sort to figure it out. But no, this was great. It was like in-depth ways of how to take a Google form and you know, turn it into something more than just gathering information in the classroom. And you know, I made like an escape room out of the Great Depression. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, just whatever, some engaging activity. So that was super helpful. The other thing um, that I took away from it is I think what helped me was I had established in-person 
connections with kids, you know, from September to March. Because it was very different, my AP class versus my sociology kids who I'd only been with, you know, a month or so, right? Um, or I guess a little over a month, but very different relationship, right? And so those connections helped kids still feel good about working with me, learning and discussing and right. um, doing what they were supposed to do. I, I really am nervous about if we have to go to online learning, which I think in some capacity we will be. You think that's uh, where it's heading to next year too, the next yeah. year? Yeah, I do. I do. I'm not an expert. I have no inside knowledge. Just I'm just looking at the landscape and knowing what I know. You know, um, I if I had to guess, I think it'll be some version of the younger kids being in buildings, at least for some time, because the real fear is the socialization skills and the more intense emotional and social needs that even younger kids have, like K through four. Right. I think those kids will take priority. Um, you know, like a lot of colleges are doing freshmen in person. Oh, interesting. Because freshmen are transitioning and they need the college experience yeah. and they need to figure it out and they're unsure. And they're doing seniors because seniors are wrapping up their programs and doing internships right. and the sophomores and juniors. This is not all for many colleges. So it's sort of a similar thing. Yeah, I can't imagine being like a senior this year and graduating because it's like, I guess it would be very anticlimactic because I remember being in high school and a senior and being like, oh, graduating, I'm finally, it's like almost like your, your steps into adulthood for the first time, you know? Yeah. And now it's like, I just ask to feel so much different for them, I guess. I don't know. Just, yeah. I give them a lot of credit for, for dealing with it and still doing it. Okay. Like I feel like most people are handling it better than I probably would for sure. Well, I think, you know, we're so adaptive. Human beings are, you know, and it's, it's devastating what's been lost. You know, we've all lost so many things during this, right. And you yeah. can, and it's not a game of who's got it worse because there's always somebody who's affected by this in a worse way than you. But we're all still mourning what we've lost, whether it's, you know, Tai Kai or the prom or, you know what I mean? You yeah, go out right, right. You know, um, but what I hope for these kids is I hope they're an amazing footnote in history, right? Like, it would be cool telling your grandkids about how, you know, your graduation went down, right? Because it was this thing that had never happened. And I hope that's all it is, right? Because if this drags on too long, you know, I worry much more. All the shine is off the apple, right? Not that that was fun, what just happened, but it was, like, unique. And everybody pulled together and made this thing. I worry about these kids if we got to do it again, right? Yeah, right. Whatever. But, again, we're adaptive and we'll we'll figure it out. Well, shifting gears into something more pot. You're bumming me out with this. Oh, my God. I feel so terrible. <laughs> well, I want you to see it as uplifting, too, right? Like yeah, we, no, everybody came together. We're, and we're still getting it done. Look, we're, we're fighting a good fight, man. Right, right. I just I would love to hear that we'd be going back in September to school, but I don't think that's the right decision to make especially with everything going on right now. But I'm like, I'm so it, conflicted because I'm not an expert, and it's just yeah. like everything's all over the place. So I'm just like, oh, man. I would love to have those kids have some sense of normalcy back, but if yeah. it's at the sake of their health or their grandparents' health, I don't think it's a wise move. Yeah, and that's the real danger there, dude, isn't so much for the kids. It's for the teachers, the bus drivers, yeah. the lunch folks, right? Like, 
and then and then those kids come home to mom to dad to grandma to grandpa yeah. but we'll see listen I, the priority is to get kids back to school if it's remotely possible to do it somewhat safely we'll that's what we'll do because it's what's best for kids but you know being healthy and alive trumps yeah, being so we'll see I, I haven't given up hope um I've given up hope about a lot of things going the way I want them anytime soon. I have not given up hope that we might be in school in September, but it's dicey. It's dicey. So going to uh, back to Taikai, what, yeah. uh, I, I heard the story when you were younger of you getting into martial arts, but yeah. what, what made you get into martial arts? Okay. Well, first of all, you got to know that the context of all this is I'm a super nerd, right? So yeah. like, Growing up on superheroes and Star Wars was life and Tolkien, you know, like, I think the closest in the modern era you could be to being a superhero outside of being like a firefighter or something is, you know, the superpower of martial arts, right? (laughs) You go in, right? Uh, But uh, a huge moment for me was seeing the Karate Kid, 1984, see the Karate Kid and, you know, I've been searching for my Miyagi ever since, you know. <laughs> Rocky had a similar effect on me too, right? It's like, like I want to do that. I want to start drinking raw eggs. Yes! <laughs> yes. I was in. Um, you know, but at the time, you know, my parents were in a financial situation that, or, or even a, a vehicle situation in those early years to have two cars to drive me somewhere and pay for expenses. Uh, martial arts lessons so but they were awesome right they they did workarounds so like i started peewee wrestling which was free it was just like a club thing through the school and so i wrestled uh when i went i thought i was going to learn wwf at the time wwf oh, dang wwf yeah it was a, it was a shocker the first thing the guy said was like this is not wwf there'll be no top row and i was like oh but you then in, you're like where's the where's the turnbuckles Exactly. Exactly. I was working on my, uh, you know, two-inch pythons at the time, <laughs> ready to go, um, styling and profiling. <laughs> Woo! Uh, but no, but I fell in love at that first practice with wrestling. It was amazing. And then the other thing that that my mom and dad did is like for that Christmas, I got uh, pajamas that were a gi with a black belt and everything, right? And man, I wore that gi. That those pajamas nonstop, and I had a collection of books. And so what they would do is uh, the Troll Book Club or like Scholastic. You know, you get that little paper thing. I don't know yeah. if you're old enough to remember. And you take it home and you fill it out. And I ordered every karate book, martial arts book out there. I was infatuated, Bruce Lee, whatever. And I would take them and I would look at the book. Uh, you know, and I'd stand in my horse stance and I'd do my punches and I do my push-ups on my knuckles and you know i was pretty dedicated for someone that had no real coach you know what i mean and, and i love and then um when i turned 15 my mom was a manager at try our drugs that became kidney drugs and she uh she hired me and i took my first paycheck and it was like a mile walk across the bridge in bridgeport to the uh valari's shaolin kempo karate school dang you're doing some Shaolin, uh, Shaolin Kung Kung Fu. Fu. Yeah, man. Uh, 
so anyhow, I spent my first paycheck on lessons, and uh, that was it. I was off and running, and that place closed when the uh, financial uh, recession hit in 92, right? So I'd been training for almost two years, and then I had to find a new school, and I went, I had finally had my license my senior year, so I was able to drive further, and you have to walk across the street or walk a mile down the street. <laughs> and uh, I found this place, ANF that did uh, ninjutsu, which, you know, ninja thing in the 80s was all the rage. So I was still had that over in the early 90s, you know. And uh, Ken Tominsky was the instructor there, and I was lucky because, <clears throat> yeah, we did ninjutsu, which was kind of fun and cool, and we snuck around and climbed stuff and did crazy things. But <laughs> I've heard some really funny uh, ninjutsu stories. Oh, dude, it was... Uh, it's a different kind of martial art. Yeah, yeah. But I loved it. <laughs> and... Uh, but he also did Thai, uh, Joe Kegel, Kegel, uh, Kegel, not that exercise where you squeeze your stuff, but uh, <laughs> he was a, he was a Thai guy around here and, and uh, Tominsky trained with him. And so like, I got like pretty authentic Thai lessons and, um, he also believed in groundwork. So we were doing, you know, the guard, um, a very like old school guard, then, right? Wasn't that it was old school? I mean, it was. It was like the Dunning Kruger. You familiar with the Dunning Kruger effect? No. So Dunning Kruger effect is this psychological term for like. A lot of times, people that don't know anything think they're experts. Uh, and what is that they're not like lying to themselves per se. Uh, one is they're not good at it, so they're making a lot of mistakes. And But the real thing that makes the Dunning-Kruger is you don't know enough to identify your mistakes. Oh. Like you don't, you don't know, like you don't have a uh, any sort of a knowledge base that what I just did is, is not a good idea. That, that's not well done. So you get a false sense of your own. Anyhow, our guard was kind of like that, you oh, know. Oh, yeah. Brazilian UFC hadn't hit Brazilian jiu-jitsu wasn't a thing um uh, but you know there, we had Japanese jiu-jitsu sort of had like this like concept of guard um I'm not even so sure if we called it guard um but anyhow but we were grappling and we were doing submission wrestling uh oh damn the, that's cool so when the UFC hit you know it, it was a game changer and it's funny because I missed the first UFC because it was pay-per-view and it at, you know, advertising wasn't like it is now. I didn't have a phone in my pocket to blow up and remind me to watch this thing I really wanted to watch. So we missed it. Yeah, <clears throat> I had to read about it in all the magazines and stuff. So we caught, my buddies and I caught uh, UFC 2. And we heard all about this Hoist Gracie guy and blah, blah, blah. But there was a ninjutsu guy whose name had a mustache. Was his, a Pat, so, no, no, that's Pat Smith, wrong guy. Pat Smith is who smashed him. Um, but uh, we were connected to Robert Bussey's uh, big organization, uh, ninjutsu organization. So Scott, Scott something. Anyhow, Scott something was fight was ninjutsu guy. So that was the guy we wanted to win UFC two. So the first match is Hoist Gracie. He goes out and he arm bars uh, the Japanese guy that did karate, and we had no idea what he did. You were like, wait, what? I actually think in retrospect, I've gone back and watched it. I think he actually choked him but the announcer who again dunning kruger who knew a little bit of jujitsu but not enough was like oh i broke the capsule he broke his arm and i so we just took his word for it but i don't yeah. think and anyway, i digress <laughs> uh, 
boo, Hoist Gracie, boo this guy. That was so boring. He just laid on his back and did this thing. And So then I watched uh, the Scott guy, Scott Mitchell maybe? Anyhow, so Scott, we're cheering for him, and he's fighting this Thai guy. So I knew a little bit of Thai, so I was kind of interested in You're for that Thai guy. But, but no, I was rooting for the ninjutsu guy. It was oh. our home. So uh, the ninjutsu guy gets in, and he shoots a double. And he bounces Pat Smith off the cage. They hit the cage, and Pat Smith lands on top of him in the guard. But obviously, no guard skills, and Smith just starts elbowing him. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, over and over. And instead of cheering, I was horrified. I was right. like, oh, my God, this is the scary. And ref doesn't stop it. Right. I mean, it's Old just. UFC, right. they didn't care. Not right away. It's not that they, did, they didn't have their rules down. Like, this was a fight to the You know, anyhow. <laughs> so finally, I don't, I should know. I don't remember. I don't know if Pat Smith just took mercy or if the ref was like, I know I'm not supposed to, but this thing is over. <laughs> um, and all my hopes and dreams for ninjutsu were temporarily uh, out the door. And, uh, you know, I was so like, I'm going to cheer for Pat Smith now, the Thai guy. You know, doesn't he fall victim to, you know, uh, another grappler, Ken Shamrock, who takes him down and, you know, ankle Ken lock. Shamrock, the WWF wrestler? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So anyhow, uh, yeah. So Hoist Gracie wins the whole thing, and I'm not impressed. Like that, that was. It was like I want to. It's like when you beat a guy in jujitsu who's never done jujitsu, and they're always like, "I want to redo." It's like, yeah. Okay, okay. Right. You. So my turning point, my my game over moment, was when Hoist Gracie fought Kimo, and most of the people in the room where I watched it, I don't know if you're familiar with the fight at all. No. Oh, this big juiced up monster carrying a cross into the ring wwe style and you know um goes in there against you know 180 pound soaking wet hoist gracie if that you know 180 with the gi on yeah exactly exactly and uh i was like oh hoist is is dead like this is it this is how he dies and he couldn't take uh chemo down and chemo's just smashing him and they get on the ground and just voice can't do anything with him but as I'm watching it, everyone's cheering for the demise of Hoist Gracie. About halfway through the fight, I started thinking about it. And I'm like, Hoist is okay. Like, he's not he's not hurt. He's not, I mean, he's tired. But And you could see chemo starting to wear out. And Hoist is, like, grabbing his ponytail and punching him. <laughs> what, a funny, what a funny and sentence. And everyone's just in the room. Is uh, you know, oh, this is it. Hoist is gonna get it, and I'm like, no, guys. Like, think about it. Look at the size difference in these guys and the athleticism difference. And and Hoist is still there. And then Hoist caught him, and and finished him. And still, you know, because after chemo, you know, gets mercy, uh, he gets up and starts acting like he won the fight because they got to carry Hoist out of the ring because he's exhausted, beyond belief, exhausted right. of what he's endured. And everyone's like, oh, you want? And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This was my epiphany. I was like, if there's no ref, Hoist chokes him literally to death. Like, can choke him until he dies. Yeah, right. So, so Kimo can get up now and celebrate like he won. Dude lost. I was like, I need to be doing this. Ah. You know, I had wrestled and long the debate had been could a you know wrestler beat a striker kind of stuff right no no thought of just be good at all of it right, yeah, right like right. 
And Bruce Lee had figured that out a long time ago about combining arts, you know. Putting um, them all together. And... But that was the beginning. And um, thankfully, A&F, we were reconnecting with uh, Scott Schultz and his top student, this guy by the name of Ken Cronenberg. I was going to um, ask how you ran into Ken. How did you yeah. two introduce it to each other? Yeah, so when I started with um, Ken Taminsky, he had been Scott Schultz's top student. And they kind of had a falling out of some sort. I don't know what. And they split into two schools. AWA was, it was like WWE stuff, right? AWA <laughs> was the school. ANF was Tominsky school. And I sort of went up the ranks there. And it was so, I, they, we were all so young, right? And it was like this rivalry, at least on our end. In my head, I was taught, like, they were the bad guys. And I was stupid, right? Like I, Scott, I, you know, Scott and Ken were the bad guys? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's like, so funny. Well, yeah, I'm still living. I want to live out my karate kid dream. They're Cobra Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Damn you, Cobra Kai. When, when in reality, I was closer to the Cobra Kai, you know, being just an angry little twit, you know. Not, <laughs> so the first time I met Ken, I'd been out drinking. Uh, and, uh, God, God, I'm so embarrassed. But bottom line is, Ken likes to embarrass me with the story. You know, we get talking. It's the four of us talking, like some sort of showdown in my head, right? It's not, though. These are old friends reconnecting with a tiff and whatever. But I'm talking to Ken or whatever, and I'm, like, kicking a pole, you know, with my shins, with my tie skills. <laughs> I'm going to scare him. I'm going to peacock him. I'm going to alpha male this dude. Oh, my God. It's so embarrassing. But anyway, that's how I met Ken. I just picture Ken. you in a, in, a like, a white beater outside Ooh. in – like really totally. tight Valley Tudo shorts, kicking a pole, like yeah, flexing man. on Ken, waiting for him to walk in. Pretty much what happened. Meanwhile, he just kind of was like, whatever. <laughs> then we did like a, a ninja camp because they started to make nice again. And it was like a weekend of hiding in the woods or whatever. And I, I was going to say ninja camp sounds awesome. Well, they, sounds... They like dogs is what happened. <laughs> I picture a lot of like throwing stars and like jumping yeah. out of the tree to surprise uh, people. Much more like having stars thrown at you. Oh, <laughs> and you, God. It's like, <laughs> like the most dangerous game. Catch uh, those so with your hands. Pretty much. But, I, you know, I got to know Ken then and kind of felt dumb. And then uh, we all started going to any seminar we could with, like, the Gracies and starting, to, you know, they bringing back the night. And we would just train, you know, basic armbar from, from guard like it was magic because it was. You know, yeah. the fundamentals were everything. And we sort of, uh, you know, I was all offended when uh, one of our students started training in an actual, you know, a, with a Gracie blue belt, which was like unbelievable. And um, he said that our guard, the way we did it, was trash. And Dunning Kruger effect again, I was like, how oh, dare he? Our guard is amazing. And it's like, oh, no, we didn't understand the mechanic. We were just closing our legs around someone. Yeah. We didn't, you know what I mean? Like, we weren't doing anything. There was no either. structure behind it. Exactly. But we were figuring it out. And it's about that time that I went away to college. That would have been uh, 1996. And I went away to college. And um, by the end of that year, a school opened in Albany called Grapplers Jiu-Jitsu. And a UFC veteran, I guess, I mean, he had a fight, Nick Sanzo. He had fought in Japan in the dark era when the UFC was like off of TV and whatever. Uh, Nick was a purple belt. And so uh, that was like a unicorn, man, to see a, a purple belt out in the wild. How crazy is that? Uh, Fast forward to 2020, and we have, like, 
literally exactly. 30 of them at Taikai. At least, yes. Yeah, like that's so crazy. So that was, uh, he was my first pure jiu-jitsu instructor. And, you know, it took me a year and I got my blue belt. Uh, a little under a year. It was like nine months. I got my blue belt, which was, I was told was fast. And um, that's also where I met Len Sonia. Len was training at Grappler's Jiu-Jitsu. He had just come, I think, from Florida. He would, he'd been in the military or something like that. I believe he'd been down to Florida. Anyhow, he was in Albany. And that's how I met Len. And Len was leg-locking guys then, like crazy. And Damn. Back in the 90s? Everybody spit on it. Because oh, he had trained with Eric Paulson and he fell in love with leg locks. Oh, uh, right, right. Everybody, you know, in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu world at the time, leg locks were considered cheap and cheating and trash and wouldn't work in a real fight and blah, blah. You know, all the stuff that we know now is like kind of nonsense, right? Yeah. But to Len's credit, he's like, well, I'm just going to keep tapping everybody out with them, whatever. And it was funny. So I was uh, end of 96, 97. You know, I, that's when I started competing in Nagas and stuff like that as well. 98, I trained with Nick a ton. And then I came back to Tai Kai on, uh, on a break. And they were training at the time out of a church basement. And they were Damn, calling. So Tai Kai started in a church basement? I don't know where it started. That was the first time I heard the term Tai Kai. Ken will probably correct me. I, I, I conflate some things. I'm a history teacher. But if I, you know, I don't study my own things. <laughs> yeah. But then where I definitely know it was called Taikai, I came back again on a break and they were on Route 31 with used to be Gino and Joe's and San Remo and I don't know what it is now. But behind, uh, San Sapporo, I think it is now. Behind there is another building, like another space. And they were basically right connected to the pizza shop. And, um, and I trained there, came back to college. Then when I came back for good, um, I went, I think we were out in, um, I think we were out in Fayetteville then. I think we were in Fayetteville, in one of the malls out there. And uh, Scott Schultz was my main instructor all of a sudden in jiu-jitsu, and Ken was his top student in jiu-jitsu. And we trained, and then Schultz went off to work with Bidwell, and Ken took over the school. And I, I took, Ken knows this, so I could say it. I was devastated because to me, Scott was like it, right? In the jujitsu world, my little jujitsu world. Especially yeah. as like a head, when you started, yep. he was the head instructor. Yep. And then Kenny was just like the top student. So it's like when you lose your head instructor, it's like, oh, yeah. my heart. And well, and I just, and, and Ken was, you know, kind of a robot, right? And Scott, even though he's crazy, right? He was crazy. He was this personality and. Yeah. You know, whatever, but man, Ken proved himself quickly. Not that he should have had to prove himself, but you know, he was the new guy, right? Yeah, right. And now knowing what I know, it's even more impressive how he kept the school afloat out of his own pocket. He believed in himself and what we were doing so much that he was taking a loss to build the school into what it is today, which is absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's so crazy to hear how, how much it's like grown over. I think I got to get Ken on the podcast too, just so he can tell the, all the old school stories of him starting the gym you need to do it. tons of them need to do it he I, he's doing that friday thing and it's great uh, yeah, it's he, cool it, watching he's got a computer brain he just does so he, he's a good source to tap and and he doesn't get it all clouded with emotion right he doesn't get all sentimental or angry about x y so he'll give it to you like the way it happened Ken doesn't is, have emotion we all know this uh he has since he's had kids <laughs> well, really he's a whole new he's a whole new human being uh, and I, I'm very lucky to have met Ken and 
uh, lucky that he put trust in me early on, you know, um, to, to be an ins- instructor. So it was when great. When did you uh, start teaching at Kai? Was it like when you came back from Albany or was it still like some time uh, after well, that? There was no need to have a second instructor, right? We weren't big enough. Um, uh, right. My first teaching gig there was either 99 or 2000. Damn. And I was the kids instructor, which I was ill-equipped for. Did I did you, the did you have any experience other than like you just I got been, out of college for social studies? Ninety seven I had been teaching and I had taught martial arts before. You know, I, I I ended up a teacher of some sort at every school I was ever at. You know, even at Valari's, um, I became like an assistant instructor and ran like a small class for new people. Oh, that's um, cool. at A and F, um, I would fill in for uh, Tominsky when he couldn't be there. Like I had teaching and I'd been a teacher for two or three years by the time, but teaching kids was different, man. Oh yeah. It's totally different. Well, I didn't think about things like some don't know their right from their left. I didn't think about, you know, hyperactivity. I didn't know like all my skills to teach were to adults. Right. And even that I wasn't good at yet. You know, it's a process. Right. You know, time I taught you whatever your first class you did with me was, right? Whether it was jujitsu, jitsu I don't know. Okay. By the time you were in front of me, you know, I had 10, probably 10 years of trial and error to Damn. develop how I taught. Right. And, and even since then, God, I would, I'd be so much better now. You know, like, like you figure things out, you, you develop it, you know, you, if you're trying anyhow, if you, if you believe in, you know, it's funny, sort of that idea of practicing makes perfect. Right. It's not always true. You know, first of all, if if you don't have perfect practice, then you're not making it perfect. You can make something worse, right? Right. Especially if you have poor technique. Yeah. Yeah. So same, same thing as an instructor, if you're just doing the same sorts of things and you're not growing. Uh, But the other thing is like, you need reflection it's the big part of teaching and the lesson's over sort of going over, well, how'd the lesson go? And you got to be honest with yourself, right? That that's an important thing. You got to get feedback from the students. And just because a student says it was boring or says it was amazing, doesn't mean they're right. That one student, but you got to get feedback and you got to have your own uh, analysis. And then how do you change- get feedback from people? Cause the ways that I've done it, it's always, I don't get anything but great. And I feel like people are just saying that just, just because they're face to face, just because they want to be nice to me, like I yeah. want to know if my class is boring, or the music sucked, or the technique was shit. Let me know. But I always get, oh, it was awesome, coach. Thanks. All right. So here's a trick. A couple of things. One, most students don't know enough to critique your class. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like they, yeah. they don't know if they just got good instruction or not. They're hoping they got good instruction. Yeah. Right. So some of the feedback that you, you want to make it specific. Mm-hmm. So like I got, um, I was, I go to certain people who I know will give me the truth, right. Um, as they see it. And I ask them things like, um, uh, did I do too many techniques today? That's a problem I have. I get carried away and I start. And, and if I ask a question like that, I'm more likely to, to get, get a, a good answer than I am like, this class today, did you have fun? 
did you like my did you like the music okay that that actually is valuable right because you, you <laughs> The music completely changes the whole mood of the class, 100%. I roll the same way, bro. Uh, but the more specific you can ask, uh, and then the more people you can sort of whatever, you know, gather information from, the better. Um, you know, and it's funny because I checked myself on this at the end of the class yesterday that I did with the adults. I said, look, man, I'm looking for feedback because most of you haven't done one of these zoom classes this is three months in the making what you're seeing but this is new to you so i'd like some feedback and um whatever i kind of just left it and i told them ways they could contact me and uh, a few of them did but it was like you said it was all like oh it was amazing i'm so sore thank you and i was like damn it i did it i know better and i did it i didn't like come i didn't come with a specific like you know um uh did the way we use the grappling dummies, do you feel like that will actually transfer over yeah. later? I feel like it does, but I want to hear from them. Like something like that. That's a better way to get feedback. I'm totally guilty of that. Cause that's, I'm always like, I always ask a very, very broad question. Mm-hmm. That's, I think I need to change the, the game plan a little bit. Get a little like, bit more specific. I always try just like in my jujitsu, right? Like I'm always working on something. Like I pick a thing that I am working on either that day, that week, that month, or until I'm bored with it. Um, I do the same thing in my teaching. I pick a thing, uh, either in the classroom or in the, uh, at the gym, and I say, you know, I need to get better at this. And, and that will inform how I'm asking questions. Like time management was one of my biggest things. My, my students made fun of me for years for, for running over, right? It's a really – it's a – it took me – to hear that enough times and reflect on it, I always thought like I'm doing them this service by keeping it going. Like how awesome that I'm not bound by time. <laughs> but, and it, I'm so, so dumb really. Like it took me a long time to be like, Oh, what I'm doing is actually rude. It's inappropriate because these people plan to be here from 12 to one. They've got places to go after that. Or more importantly, they want to go to the class on the other side. Yeah, right. On time. They want to get to open mat on time. Um, so it's a stupid example. But like learning, like hearing people make that joke, they were trying to tell me something. You know, many of them didn't care, but it was a thing they noticed that, oh, here we are. Where it's, one, it's, you know... 1210 and we're supposed to be down at 12 and we're still going i always um, plan for mma class to go 15 minutes late right now mma class i didn't care as much you had nothing going on after nothing after it nothing during it but that's how that bad habit started and it started to spill over and uh, again i always had it as a badge of honor and it took me a long time to figure out too long to figure out uh, i was being unfair but so time management was one and then how do i pack what I used to pack into, you know, an hour and 20 minutes into one hour. And then you're like, Oh, now I'm packing. Now I'm throwing too much at them and right. whatever. It's a constant evolution. Yeah. That's like with me, it's, I'm always, when I take a seminar or I take somebody else's class, I'm always trying to take what was my favorite part of that class that he taught. And like, how can I apply that to how I teach? Like I, I still remember when Greg Nelson came to Taikai. And I always tell the story about how 
he changed my uppercut game tenfold with like very very detailed instructions and he was able to like give like a lot of detail but also give a lot of energy to the class and i thought that was so awesome just the way that his like teaching model worked i don't know i guess a different teachers speak to you differently but i try to pull the best qualities from all these different people agreed agreed and you know look to people that do what you do it doesn't even have to be teaching the same art but if it's coaching or teaching that's why those all the great coaches are read about other great coaches or interview other great coaches regardless of sport or activity right like just uh, it's a transferable skill right um the art of teaching yeah and do you feel like when you started teaching did your jujitsu skills jump tenfold Oh, 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 like actually teaching the art of jujitsu. Yeah, then like, you know, it's like, it's the cliche, right? Um, you know, if you're told something, one thing, if you do something, another, oh, you get, then you really, but to teach it because people ask you questions like, yeah. why, why do I put my foot here? You're like, oh crap, why do they put their foot there? Yeah, right. Um, hmm. Or why isn't this working for me? And, and it, again, Dunning-Kruger, right? Like if, if you don't have enough knowledge to analyze what they're doing and realize, well, every time you move, you're putting your hip on the ground and you're supposed to stay parallel to the mat on your back. Like you have to really know that. As, and, but by them asking you that, you explore and find those answers. And what happens is fast forward a year when you teach that same arm bar that, you know, and where everyone was putting the new guy always puts their hip on the ground you could preemptively say, here's a common mistake. Right. And they're like, oh, and then you're more ready for the new question that comes out or whatever. And that's, uh, yes. Yeah, so it made my jujitsu better, but it also made me, but you got to fail and you got to struggle and you got to not have answers. And that's why you got to be honest with yourself and not yeah. act. You have an answer to a question. You don't. Yeah. I that's, like, uh, Phil Maurice when he just did that seminar this, uh, past year and he's got that, same philosophy where he's just like, well, I don't know, but I'll get back to you with an answer. Damn, yep. I respect that. I love that. Yeah, one of the big, one of the biggest moments for me as a coach, um, as far as changing me, uh, was you know after years of being a coach, I think I was pretty good, and you know whatever. Um, I was sort of helping Matt Martindale and Oneonta Jiu Jitsu grow their program and you know they had me up for seminars they still do um hopefully still will hopefully soon uh let's get back <laughs> but uh but martindale you know it's when barambola was all the rage in competition and by that point i wasn't following competitive jujitsu anymore I, it really evolved into something new and he asked me if i would come and do a barambola seminar and i was like dude i can't teach a barambola seminar i don't even know what that is and I was embarrassed um I shouldn't have been but I was I felt like I was supposed to be the resource for this guy right so I went and I studied Barambolo and I made it like my mission to get good at it and to understand it inside and out but I also made a, a sort of a commitment to myself that if I was going to support a school in Martindale school and to a lesser extent Tamden school at BC martial arts what I say what I mean by a lesser extent is uh Martindale School is much more focused on jujitsu competition than uh, Tamden. Tamden, you know, had competitors, low competition, but the mindset was a little different. 
So anyhow, I was like, I need to not only promote self-defense, but there's no reason I can't learn what high-level competitors are doing and help these guys be ready for the competition scene. And boy, did that open my eyes to jujitsu, like the mo- modern jujitsu. I basically dove into modern jujitsu. I've not given up my roots. Of, I think old school fundamentals and close guard are still what's up. If you can only learn one thing, that's what you do. But I'm fascinated by modern jujitsu. Like, you know, uh, my initial reaction to worm guard was to reject it as this silly. Uh, and but then when I started doing it, I was like, wow, what a what a Rubik's cube and. You know, things that I used to watch and see them as boring, once you do them and you can see the chest match going on, you're like, no, no, no. All he's got to do, once he gets a hold of that collar, like, oh, now someone grabbing a collar all of a sudden is exciting like because you know what that means. Anyhow, that that was a game changer, and I try to just keep that in mind as, you know, uh, and also Barambolo is is gone as a fad, but the principles that – made it what it was like a lot of the core movements are still there and it's just applied differently now yeah i don't know if that made any sense but that was like a big moment and i think it it changed my game a ton too do you think there's a is there like one teacher that's out there that completely changed your game was it like uh Eddie eddie bravo eddie bravo how how did he change your game is it just like his whole 10th planet system yeah, what you just said there, system, right? It, it's not because it was rubber guard. Like, the way my mind works, um, like, I don't know, I don't know your perception of it, and I'm not asking for too much feedback, but, like, when you were in the MMA program, I saw what the way I was running it as a system. Yeah. I taught every guy the same way, the same fundamentals of how we're going to um, punch and pass the guard. And I taught, like I taught, like when we're on the cage, here's our go-to system. I systemized. Yeah. I got that from Eddie Bravo. Like he took not just one piece. He didn't just take close guard and say, here is an armbar series from close guard. And here is a Komura series from close guard. That's the way I'd always learned. Like these little series. And uh, another guy that did that actually that captured my imagination was uh, Eric Paulson. And he was like one of the first guys that really systemized things. And my brain responded to that. I can remember and put these chains together. And right. it was such a building way to learn and to see the whole picture while doing this piece. That was one but of the I- funnest seminars I've been to. It was Eric Paulson. He's such a character. I was like, yeah. oh, man, he's such like uh, – I remember I was partnered with Mike, and I told him, I was like, this guy could be a character in a movie. He's awesome. <laughs> yeah. He he's that personality, right? Yeah. Still is. He's been that person from the beginning till now, right? But Eddie was like teaching. He called it his system, and he showed how it was a system and how when this breaks down, you, you go to this. And it was like if it, it made it all these if then statements. Mm-hmm. Now and you go to here, and it made it like a video game. You want to get to level four, and then you fight the boss. If you get to level four and die, you know you might have to go all the way back to level one, but you just start that journey again and. That really helped me, and it helped me even systemize parts of my game that he didn't systemize, like leg locks and stuff like that. Where like, you know, okay, this is, and I really started thinking of, you know, everything the way that he did. So it wasn't rubber guard per se, although I love rubber guard, um, but it was his systemizing and meeting him and talking to him. Even though you want to talk about characters, um, yeah. 
at, uh, but at I'll never, ever, ever, you know, uh, forget what he did for my game and my teaching. I teach very systematically now. Yeah, I was just going to say, it shows in the way you teach. It's very much like a dentist style where it's when we were doing uh, MMA twice a week, it was always Monday was building off of last Wednesday, Wednesday's building off of Monday, and it was always like we were working up to something, and then all of a sudden we'd be like, all right, we're doing something fresh now, starting from ground zero. So it's funny how it all works out that way. Is that is Eddie Bravo like the biggest, like the the best seminar that you've been to, where you learn no. the most from? No, <laughs> no, not at all. No, uh, <laughs> uh, that first seminar I was like starstruck, and and because I would, I'd been reading his books and you know practicing, but man, it, the proliferation of videos on the internet and stuff just wasn't there. He didn't have a DVD out. Like I was learning from a book, and like again, just so didn't have it. Just didn't have it. But I, but learning from him in person that first time, I had a, had a huge impact on me. But the problem with, uh, and I'm sorry if Eddie ever hears this. First of all, I'm flattered, Eddie, that you're listening. But um, yeah, right. my 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 problem with uh, Eddie Bravo seminars, even though I love them, I, I'm prepared for them now. Is there's inevitably a point where he just takes the floor and talks, and it, he's amazing to listen to but it's usually after you're all sweating and you're working and you're moving you're just so hungry to keep going yeah and now you get this dissertation and you're like cooling down and you're like oh dude come on man i want to trade what kind of things are you talking about that oh you tell crazy that uh jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams oh god thank god he didn't hit this (laughs) flat earth stuff but i still love you eddie still love you forever Especially when uh, the last one he did in Rochester, when I went, uh, he remembered me, which I was like, oh, you know, oh, or did or, or did a great job faking it, which was pretty awesome. Yeah, right. Um, but anyhow, that was at the Chris Herzog school, right? Yeah, yeah, it was Man, the I day Her- Herzog. I like Herzog a lot. He got his black belt that day. Um, best seminar. You know, Greg Nelson stands out because it was it was MMA, and again, it was like he's the, you know, he he was a lot of like what I wanted to be as a coach. So to have him there, pretty amazing and awesome. And then uh, the other big one for me, man, I gotta say, um, Andre Goval. Uh, the reason that one had such an impact on me is by the time when we got Goval to come. I was into, because of my previous story, I was into modern jujitsu. I was in like the throes of it. And I was, he was teaching like the stuff that I was immersed in. And that the fact that I had a language to talk to him about high level jujitsu and ask, get get these details cleaned up for me. And he was so gracious and giving and thoughtful. And just, I think he was excited by, you know, not that I'm was some genius or something, but by the sorts of things I was pushing for, you know, it wasn't like inevitably when the white belt asked, like, well, how do I get a triangle? You know, like, <laughs> I was details cleaned up in my game. But anyhow, that 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 one was was huge for me. Um, but yeah. yeah, Greg Nelson for me was I always I always talk about that, but that was like a moment when I took his class when I left that day. I remember thinking to myself, damn, I want to teach, like, soon. I don't know what it was. I just I think it was just the way that he – his 
the instruct like how it was set up or i don't know just he was just so like engaging and great to listen to i guess i don't know things were like fast paced he's on to the next thing here's detail he did what you know what impacted me i was talking about coaching is he did what i thought i did he Uh did did it better like of course i mean obviously like i and what i mean is you know you think about what I try to do with my classes, but especially striking, right, is having people in constant motion yeah. and, and engagement. I like giving them – I don't ever want it to be a point in class where you are being passive, right? So, like, we're going to warm up with checking the kick. And let's, let's not make it just – you know, we'll build it up till we warm up by you throw the kick, you check it, you know. But now we make it, you know, you have three ways to check the kick and, you know, you, you're going to, they're going to feed you the kick and you, you know, in an order that you're ready for. And then we're going to, the last drill we're going to do is they're going to throw it and you don't know which one's coming and apply it, blah, 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 blah. Like yeah. easy, slow, and, and then kind of build up. I wanted all of my teaching to be that way. Like I demo it and, and I wanted to cut down on, I'm very verbose. I like to talk and I, uh, you know, I, I kind of took that from Eddie Bravo, right? Like that, I I hated even when I was engaged, when people would carry on in the middle of class. Like I'm here to learn. I want to learn. Let's talk afterwards. Right. So I kind of made a big change there, where I try to make try. I fail miserably sometimes to do most of the talking at the end of class when we're done. Right. Um, during class, I unless it's a way to hook somebody. I want them in motion. I want them moving. It's like quick demo. Yeah. Get them going, watch it. Not working. Stop. Do a quick. Make a quick adjustment. Back to it. Um, and building up to more and more contact or more and more liveness, if yeah. you will. Right. Same thing in my jujitsu classes. Like I try to make the drills interactive drills and not just you do it. Now I do it. Now you do it. And he did that with everything. He made everything a little game almost. Yeah. Right. Everything was, everything was like. You know, you're going to pummel, but you're going to pummel and you're going to try to be the first one to get double underhooks and, and dominate it. So, like, we weren't going live, but we were. Yeah. And we did it kind of first passively, then we did it actively, and he just kept it moving and everything flowed together. Um, and I had always, I mean, that, that was my plan. It just wasn't executed that way. So I learned a lot and I think it helped yeah, as a coach. Totally. No, he's definitely, he's such a cool interesting character especially because i don't know i don't know what it is i think just his teaching language hooked me like it's not that eric paulson is any less of a teacher or you know sifu it's just like i just for whatever reason when i took greg nelson's class it just like spoke to me and it was also a moment in my life that i was like holy shit i kind of want to teach this is like this seems he made it like seem so fun and made me realize it's like really rewarding in a sense yes and I don't know. He's he's just a he's an interesting cat. Do you miss teaching uh, MMA? Uh, every day, yeah. Um, it was my choice to get rid of the program. I mean, I started it with Ken's blessing, and I think two thousand and one, two thousand two, definitely right around there. And um, it was just a class. It was I had a passion for it, and Kenny. Let me explore it sometime around there. And um, and it evolved from a class to, you know, cornering fighters. And Yeah, how what was that like? Like walking out with Moose and Bellator or yeah, yeah, well, UFC? Well, the, 
the first fight I ever cornered was Corey LaPlante, I think in 2004. It was me and Ken. Ken graciously, though he had more experience doing it, kind of let me take the lead, but he was there because it was his student as well, obviously, right, in his program. And we were uh, we were on a card with actually some Tim Carpenter, who's a balanced black belt um, now, and actually Rick was cornering him, Rick Negaries. So that was my first time kind of yeah. meeting that part of the fam. Yeah. And, uh, and Corey won. He dominated the fight in the kids' hometown because, you know, no New York MMA. Yeah. And, um, it was so exhilarating, and that's kind of what gave it jet fuel. That's when the program took off, I think, 2004, 2005. And, um, you know, by 2010, you know, we had our first professional real fights, right, like, like with Moose. Yep. And the amateur program really, really blew up. And, um, you know, we had all those amazing moments with Filthy Steve, you know, coming back from cancer and snatching that arm bar. And I know, right? Oswego opened up and we had the program up there. And, uh, yeah, it was tra- from, like, 2012 to, like, 2014. I was – Chris Roach and I were traveling the country cornering and, you know, fighting in parking lots and uh, – <laughs> In like Dick Sporting Goods type stores and like yeah, and attics and uh, it was uh, Holiday Inns. Right. Uh, it was something. And then uh, Moose got his big break in 2013, I think it was, and uh, he had his big fight and winning in Bellator. It was like we've arrived. You know, the the difference between the low lower end pro shows and the amateur shows up to Bellator was like shocking to the system and, and amazing right just and, more like organized more coherent oh, oh yeah so professional so you know things provided but then to go from bellator to the ufc to see the next level at the time yeah uh, you know i don't know how bellator is involved I mean, no slight to bellator at all you know uh, amazing organization and you know right. people remembered us every time we came back you know that the crew was the same crew that you worked with and uh, People knew you. People, you felt like you were part of something. Yeah. Seeing that you didn't feel that same way, but um, but you were treated amazing. And and I was walking amongst some of my heroes, you know. Um, right. And some of the people I grew up watching in UFC, you know, you try not to be starstruck. You want to act like you've been there before, you know. Um, but now getting that break with Tamden in 2015. You know, I, I had seen Tandon's entire career, his first run in the UFC and stuff. He was, he was at Ty Kai for all that, right? And yeah. uh, I desperately wanted to be a part of it. Um, I had done sparring with them and stuff like that, but, um, you know, I, I was not part of that adventure. I just sort of watched it happen. You know, John Jones came through. You know, I, I saw all those guys. I, I rolled with those guys. I knew those guys, but I didn't. You know, I wasn't a part of that first journey in any meaningful way. So to kind of get a redo and get to be there and, and corner Tamden, um, I forever, ever thankful. You know, I, I wish I had broke through with one of my homegrown guys, right? Like, I've been a part of Tamden's journey, but I wasn't like, you know, I, it would be disingenuous to act like even his jujitsu game is because of me, right? But right. like, you know, some of those other guys, you know, obviously Mike and Ed, I, was their main coach you know and, and i to get mike to bellator was very very gratifying right especially because moose is like that's your boy 
Yeah, he's my special boy. Him and Ed are my special boys. They were the, you know, I started with Mike, uh, but Ed was super influential. You know, Chris Roach, I, I can't even call him my right hand man. That, that's denigrating to what he did. Does, you know, my part got it done. So, yeah, those were, those were exciting times. But after sort of the, the Mike was kind of done, um, and understandably so you don't need to keep taking those punches to Ed, you know, and, and Ed was kind of done and kind of shifted over to jujitsu. Ed just and... couldn't get a match. Man, yeah. If yeah. I had a dollar every time we were like anticipating a fight for him and then it fell through. I, I think what happened to Ed was in the, am- he needed more amateur fights, even though he was undefeated and dominating and we just couldn't get him Miami fights. So we had to go pro yeah. and then even pro to get him, to get at heavyweight, there's just not as many guys, right? Yeah. So there just weren't fights to be had except for really good established guys. He just fought, for the most part, with one, I think one exception, I would say. He just fought monsters that, that had more experience, that had been there, you know? So it was, Ed is like what could have been, and I, that's not a slight to Ed at all. He did what he was supposed to do. I think just circumstance got him. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, anyway. um, he's such a you know, big but, scary dude. I love Ed. He's yeah. such a sweetheart, but he's so scary when you look at him. <laughs> yeah. He's done in the jiu-jitsu world, right? I mean, he's he's a special athlete and a special dude, man. So, but yeah, those two. But once they they were kind of done, and those Ami fighters are so. You know what it is in jujitsu? There comes a point where you stop chasing the belt. And it's a different point for everybody. Sometimes it's not until black belt, right? And you just, you're like, I just love jujitsu and I'm just going to do it, right? Yeah, I just right. do it. And in MMA, if you don't have that mentality, what happens is people train for a fight. Then they have the fight and they're like, okay, I did it. And, and they're done. Yeah. And that happens a lot. And then they, they, they realize what it took to get there and to be ready for that fight. And most people, especially when you're not going to get a good paycheck for it, aren't willing to put themselves through that again. Yeah. So, you know, even though I structured the class, which is insane, in a way that not only amateurs, but just some guy taking an MMA class could train alongside a pro fighter, right? Like, even with that model, which was less than ideal, but it was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, we got it done, but the program started to fall apart. And, and it was like, I had to rebuild it cyclically. And once I was on my, like, 10th time of, like, it's mostly new people who aren't ever going to be fighters, um, and they're not showing up regularly enough to be, like, yeah. I said, one of my, and I would have my guys, you know, normally Mike and Ed would help, you know, the, the new people get that, you know, and Chris was coming less. I think he, you know, was feeling the same. And I was just like, I'm, this isn't fulfilling anymore. Yeah. And I'm not going to be cornering anybody anytime, you know, other than the idiots that are like, all right, I'm ready for a fight next week. And I sign up and like, no, it's not the way we do it here. Yeah. And yeah. Well, I remember so when anyhow, I started, I talked to be a blue belt in order to get an MMA fight. I remember that was the deal. Yep. Yep. It was until we shut the program down. Yeah. So Kenny decided that the way to do it, I thought he was smart. was like, he asked me if I rather do no gi because it, you know, the connection to MMA. And, um, yeah, so I don't have the big classes that we used to sometimes get in MMA with no gi, but it became very consistently 
you know, 10 to 15 people. And that, that felt like worth showing up for. And people were excited and wanted to be there. Right. You know, versus MMA, where uh, it's just, it, it became a different thing. And I'm sad that it's gone, but uh, fulfilled by jujitsu, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. Totally. I think uh, the kids and the adults alike are also very, very lucky to have you as a teacher at Taikai, for sure. Especially for the amount of energy and love that you put into it. I mean, you were doing the Zoom classes for the kids. How many days a week during this whole thing? Plus adult classes. So trust me, we're very appreciative of everything that you've done. Do you have any uh, final thoughts or final words? Yeah. Um. Here's the thing, man. I am so lucky through school. You know what I what I've done as a teacher and Tai Kai to come across all of these people in my life that I've been honored enough to be a part of their journey and to get back from them that energy. And, you know, I, I have a ton of people that I could name, but like you're a great example. So, you know, first time I met you, you were not my student, but you were a high school student to see your journey as an athlete at Tai Kai from goofy kid having fun to dedicated student to fighter in the ring to coach to now father and they, like that is such an honor that I get to be a part of and see that um, and you know as special as you are and what I just laid out there you know there's so many people like you that, that I could sort of walk through the journey of when they walked in and now or yeah, right. students of mine so anyhow um i bring that up now because i i'm that's part of what i've been missing with this zoom thing right which is had to be done with this global pandemic and um to be able to reconnect with human beings again face to face and watch their journeys and see where they go um i'm very lucky even when socially distanced six feet apart yeah 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 oh absolutely absolutely <laughs> So thank you for having me on. I I gave you anything exciting or new. I didn't know what we were going to talk about, but I enjoyed it. Thank you, dude. I appreciate you. I appreciate you, homie.